The Bible is full of colorful characters that many of us learned about as children. But there's a lot that sing-alongs and felt boards can't really teach us about these characters. After all, these are people that really lived and died. People that really failed and triumphed, learned and listened, doubted and believed. Let's dig into these stories together, trusting that they've been passed down to us for the same reason these ancient people lived through them, to develop some character of our own. Well, good morning again. Welcome to Elements. It is a joy to look out at your faces this morning. So we are starting, as you can see, character season two. That's what we're calling it, season two. Because last summer, we also went through character, uh, this character series. So we're doing all the same people. Just kidding. We're, we're doing all new, all new characters um, through the summer here for a bit. So this is going to be exciting. I'm going to dig into these people's lives, their stories, or at least a part of their stories, and see how that applies to us today. So I'm Benjamin, one of your pastors here. Let's get started. Do you know what a bit part is, a bit part in a movie or a show? I was familiar with this idea of a, of a bit part, right? I knew it was small, but I looked it up, and apparently it has to be five lines or less in the show or movie or whatever. And usually the bit, the bit player, the person doing the bit part, uh, has to interact with the principal or the main characters, right? And that's how, you, that's why you call it a bit part, a bit part. So it's not an extra, right? Not someone in the background. They actually have a few lines. Usually they're throwaway lines, like a waiter that comes up, uh, your table is ready. And that's it. That was it. They interacted with the main character, one line, maybe a couple lines. Maybe they come up and, you know, get their order later or something like that. And there's some really famous bit lines, bit part lines out there, like at the end of King Kong. No, oh, twas beauty killed the beast. That's a bit part. That's not a main character that says that uh, at the end of King Kong. It's just a guy on the street, right? It's a bit part. So normally, they're, they're not huge roles. They're not that significant. They're just kind of there to make it feel real. But our character today is kind of a bit player. He kind of has this bit part, but it's actually extremely important. These few lines that our character has is extremely important. In fact, he plays a huge role in spreading the gospel to the world because of this little bit part that he plays. And we always do this guessing game during our character series. So let's see. Um, here's, a, here's, the, here's the other clue. This character interacts, interacts with Saul, not Paul. Pre-Paul, Saul, right? This character interacts with Saul just for a moment. Does anybody have any guesses? Oh, wait, no, I'm just kidding. Um, we're talking about today Ananias. And then you all go, oh, yeah, I was about to say Ananias. I was about to say that. <clears throat> Ananias. We're looking at Ananias because he took this idea from Jesus of loving your enemy to a whole new level, a whole new level in these few sentences that he has. So, to understand Ananias, we have to look at the story of Saul, right? 
A lot of us know Saul became Paul, one of the greatest missionaries ever who spread the good news of Jesus all over the known world at the time. But before that, of course, he was Saul, a religious leader who was consumed with zeal against the way. The way, that was the name of the first church, right? This Jesus movement that was born out of Jesus' teachings, death, and resurrection. So Saul was convinced that this was evil, and it needed to be stamped out. So he basically was given the authority to put together a task force and went around arresting church leaders, throwing them in prison, and sometimes if they kept on teaching or preaching or talking about Jesus, he would not just have them arrested, but have them beaten up or sometimes even executed. And we have the story of Stephen, right? Young Stephen, who's preaching and wouldn't stop preaching. And Saul is there when they stone Stephen to death. He's holding the cloaks of the people that stoned Stephen to death. Here, let me make it easier to kill this young Christian preacher, this Jesus-following preacher. That was Saul heading up this huge persecution of the first church. So, this was all in Jerusalem, right? The center of the first church. So, Paul was taking his show on the road. He was going to Damascus to weed out the Christians in Damascus and do the same thing there. So, he's on his way. And what happens? The light. Right, kids? You remember this story? The light from heaven shines and blinds him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's blinded. And he says, go into the city of Damascus and wait. So they take him, his traveling companions, they take him into Damascus. He's blinded. He cannot see anymore. So let's pick up Acts chapter 9, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. That's important. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So Ananias' bit part to play is the guy who restores Saul's sight. That's probably what it would say in the end credits, right? The guy who restores Saul's sight. And he had every reason in the world to question this assignment, right? 
Saul. It was Saul, the persecutor, coming to town. It's like this. Imagine if there was an FBI anti-Christian task force that was formed in Washington, D.C., and their, their goal, their task was to track down Christians, to arrest leaders, pastors, speakers, whoever's saying they're a Christian, burn down their churches. If they resist, publicly execute them. Imagine hearing that, seeing the stories, see, watching the videos of this for months, and then all of a sudden, this task force is coming to our city. And then imagine the next thing you know, you have a dream and God tells you to let go lay hands on the ringleader and pray for him. Right? This is where Ananias finds himself in that kind of a situation. He has every reason to question this command from God. Right? Because he has evidence that Saul means him and his people harm. He has evidence that Saul is after his beliefs and after his way of life. He has evidence that Saul is coming to arrest and kill him. And I would imagine this would, this would have caused Ananias to feel something pretty deeply, right? Something that's behind every bit of evidence or reason or question or excuse that we give when we don't want to go love someone. And maybe it was even anger. But if it was, underneath all that was probably fear wasn't it? It was probably fear, and for good reason. But I wonder if any of us do that, church. I wonder if any of us store up evidence to back up our beliefs about someone that we deem a threat to us, and then we take that evidence to God when we know we're called to love that person like Jesus does. Yes, God, but I have the evidence to justify my fear of this person, right? They're a threat to my values. But God, I have the evidence to justify my anger about this person. So do I really need to go over there and love them? And some of you are probably thinking that, you know what? Ananias is right, though, right? The evidence that he's looking at about Saul is actually correct. It's factual evidence, Saul had arrested and killed Christians. Saul was ruthlessly persecuting the church. Ananias' questioning of God, do I really need to go do this, is based on evidence, real evidence. But what about this? What if Ananias' fears were based on the wrong evidence? What if the fear in loving our enemies comes from the wrong evidence? What could happen if we take our eyes off the evidence that our fear is latching onto and instead take hold of the evidence that our faith can hold onto? The faith that loving our enemies in the way of Jesus is the best way. The evidence about Saul was correct, was it? Because it actually wasn't correct in that moment, was it? Saul had been blinded by the light. He had been changed. He had encountered Jesus. So the story that Ananias was believing, the evidence he's believing about Saul, was correct in the past. But it was not correct in the present. See, guys, the evidence that we see on the outside of someone who looks like an enemy may not always represent that person's heart. There may be much more that's going on on the inside of that person. 
See, that's God's business, the inner work on that person's heart. And our work lies in obeying the new command of Jesus to go and love as he has loved us. Jesus talked a lot about this, a lot about this. Let's go over to Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. This is Jesus teaching, and he says, You have heard it that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let me ask you something, church. Where do you have to be in order to be slapped by someone? Arm's length, close. Where do you have to be in order to give your coat to someone, in order to walk the extra mile with someone? You have to be right next to them, right beside your enemy for these things to be able to happen, to be able to live out this teaching of Jesus. You've got to be right there engaging that person. Ananias walked up to Saul and laid his hands on him. He came close enough to his enemy to be wounded. He came close enough to be rejected, close enough to offer a blessing, close enough to obey the new covenant of love. See, Ananias' choice, his behavior is getting rid of that old clean, unclean notion of the old covenant, right? Unclean, don't touch, enemy, bad, stay away, proximity alert. This is, the no, this is no longer the, the, the keep your distance, the arm's length of the other so that we can judge safely from a distance. What if the church has gotten this wrong? What if that holy distance thing where Christians keep those they see as enemies or sinners or heretics or outsiders at arm's length for fear of contamination? What if that's all wrong? And I know, I know we don't want to be seen as approving of sin, right, or supporting ungodliness or these things, but please, please consider this. And I, and I ask this question of me, and I ask it of you, and nothing but grace. But what if we started caring less about how we're viewed by insiders and started caring more about if those who are outsiders are experiencing the radical acceptance and love of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one that we say we love, he received foot washings from harlots. He dined with hated government officials. He touched lepers, and he forgave his murderers while they were murdering him. That Jesus... We talked about a few weeks ago, the new covenant from Jesus himself is love. It is relational. This way, relational. It asks the question, what does love require of me here? And that is what Ananias had to answer. What does my love for God require of me here in this moment? What does my love for my enemy require of me in this moment? So, Looking back at Matthew 5, Jesus goes on. Let's see what he has to say about enemies. 
in Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it was said, Jesus says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But all of this begs the question, who are my enemies? Because a lot of you are probably thinking, like, I don't, I don't really have enemies, right? Who has enemies these days? What does that even mean these days? And Ananias, he had a clear enemy. It was obvious this guy was coming to kill everybody. But I don't have that. Well, who, who's my enemy? And you would have a point, sort of. Let's look at three words from this passage. We'll look at the Greek for a minute, okay? We're going to look at neighbor, hate, and enemy and see what's behind these words. So, um, verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Look at these words. Here's neighbor. Placeon. It really has more to do with nearness, with someone who is nearby, proximity, right? So love your neighbor. We translate that into neighbor, but we're talking about neighboring. It's actually an adverb, neighboring or nearby, okay? So loving the people around you that you're interacting with all the time. Um, love your neighbor. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hate. Maseo. It means to hate, to detest, but underneath that, to love less or esteem less. I didn't make that up. I didn't put that in there to make a point. It's in there. To esteem less, right? To denounce, to love something less than something, something else. So it's this sense of comparison. To renounce one choice in favor of another. So seeing something or someone as less than. See, if we don't look at the original language, we miss all that. And we go, well, I don't hate anybody. But do you not? To esteem less. An enemy. Enemy. Ekthros. It means hostile. Um, and it implies irreconcilable hostility proceeding out of a personal hatred bent on inflicting harm. So hostility, irreconcilable hostility. You can't find a way forward with someone or you don't even want to because you esteem them as less. So who is Jesus saying that we need to love in order to behave like God is our Father? He's saying not just to love those in our circle, those who are near, our neighbors, those we surround ourselves with, but also and most especially those whom we would normally esteem less than or withhold our favor from, those who would be our biblically defined enemy, 
That's what that means. Those we perceive as harmful. And I'm not just talking about those who would commit violence against us through words or actions, right? I'm talking about those enemies, but not just those enemies. I'm talking about the enemies that we perceive as a threat to our spiritual safety. Those who we deem to be a threat to our way of life. Those who would violate our values the most. Those who would endanger our beliefs the most. Those who would offend our sensibilities the most. Those who we are tempted to carry out the violence of gracelessness or neglect or exclusion against. Because here's a tough question. Friends, how many times when the Bible speaks of enemies do we assume that it's referring to someone who mistreats us? Why does it not occur to us that it's also speaking of those whom we ourselves view and treat as enemies? In Jesus' time, when he uttered these words to that ancient Jewish audience, they, they had a lot of obvious enemies, didn't they? The nearby political, cultural neighborly enemies, those as far as nearby. And, and then there was the Roman Empire, right, with its satellite governments and its oppressive occupying soldiers. He wasn't just saying go the extra mile for someone who regards you as less than. He was also saying go the extra mile for someone that you regard as less than. So let's take this one step further. Because this passage about loving neighbors and enemies still sounds like there's some judgment involved with that. Still sounds very sort of dualistic here. And what about the greatest command, right? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Where do enemies fit into that? Seems like that should have been a part, maybe, of the greatest command. But it's just love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So to see where enemies fits into that, we need to talk about the Good Samaritan. Kids, do you remember that story, the Good Samaritan story? We're going to tell that story, okay? So this is how it starts. This is a parable, and Jesus likes to answer questions with stories a lot of times, and I love that. So it's in Luke 10, 25. Uh, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers with a question like he does most of the time. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, uh-oh, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, who can I leave off the list? If I know who the neighbor is, what do you mean by that? I know I can cover the right people and forget the rest. So Jesus answers that question with a story, the story of the Good Samaritan. So there's a guy coming down from Jerusalem. Right? And he is set upon by robbers and beaten up badly. His stuff, even his clothes are stolen. He's left on the side of the road in a bad, bad way. Right, kids? 
Remember this part? And then a priest comes by. Someone who, you know, should probably know the Scriptures pretty well and should maybe stop and help, but he doesn't. And then one of the most chosen of chosen Jewish people comes by, a Levite. Someone who's like, they don't have to worry about it. They are in, man, in like Flint. They're, they've made it. They're a Levite. They're good. Doesn't stop. But a Samaritan comes by and sees the guy and takes care of him and binds his wounds, takes him to a place to stay, pays for his stay, and tells the innkeeper, however much more he owes, I'll come back by and pay all the rest too. The interesting thing about the story is that the Samaritan and the Jewish guy are supposed to be enemies, right? They're supposed to be cultural and religious enemies, enemies with historical reasons to regard each other as less than, enemies who disagreed with one another on important issues, enemies with evidence, like we were talking about, with the evidence for their hostility and gracelessness. So, What is Jesus saying about who our neighbor is in this story? What if he's saying that our neighbor is not just the person who's always near us, but the person in front of us, the person we run into, the person we come upon who is in need of mercy, who is in need of grace, who is in need of love, who is in need of healing, the one we should Regard as less than. But because of the new command of Jesus, love one another as I have loved you, we say, no, that's my neighbor. The lesson here, I think, church, is that our neighbor and our enemy are one and the same. They're one and the same. Here's another way to say it. When we love like Jesus taught us to love, there are no enemies, only neighbors. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Whoever's in our path and in need of mercy, that's our neighbor. That's who we love like Jesus taught us to love. The band, you guys can come back up. So Ananias, this character, this real man, he had a choice when God told him to go and lay hands on Saul. He had a choice. And he also had evidence that said, this is not a good choice. This guy is obviously an enemy but he chose to obey God, not just to obey to look good or to get God's favor. We already have that, don't we? But to obey the new command of Jesus to go and love his enemy like he's his neighbor, to get close enough to maybe even have to turn the other cheek, to go by faith in who Jesus is, not fear due to the evidence about somebody to treat Saul like a neighbor, to offer healing to someone who seemed to be completely opposed to what he held dear. Church, may that be so for us. 
May it be so for us today. Let's pray.